So we are now in January, January 14th. There's only about 11 and a half months until Christmas. Um, so get ready. But I want I wanted, to, before we get into what we're going to talk about this morning, I want to just kind of briefly lay a, a groundwork for what God is churning in me and what God, is, I believe, is, is continually churning in our church. And that is we, you're going to hear more and more that we want to be a church that has a outward focus, not for just this, just to be outward focused, but we want to see God's kingdom come here on earth. We want to expand his kingdom in every way possible that we have um, in our capability to do so. And so, the, the, the really, the, the question comes down to, are we ready as a church, are we ready as a church to reach out to not other people who go to different churches and get them to come here? Are we ready as a church to reach out and be a church that embraces people who don't know Jesus and give them an opportunity to become part of a community of faith? Are we um, focused on out there and not just in here. And, and really, I, we, can, we can set up opportunities to reach out, we, and, and we have, and we are, we're, we're kind of thinking through those things. Uh, you know, we have the Eyes Farm thing. We have the, the, um, the marathon. We're also going to do the fall festival in Cheshire this year um, and, and just kind of make a presence of the church and, and set up a prayer tent, see if anybody wants to be prayed for, you know, out in the public. But the question is, we can offer all those opportunities, but unless we as a church community are ready to, to accept and receive people and are willing to do the work of receiving people, then it's just never going to happen. And so we need to look beyond our comforts. We need to look beyond, church can no longer be, and, and I'm looking around and, and I recognize most of your faces You've been here a while. Church can no longer be about our comfort, what we want, how we want it. It has to become how can we be a church that goes out and shares the gospel. And are we ready for people, those, 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 those heathen people that don't know Jesus, to come to our church? Are we ready to be uncomfortable? Are we ready to begin to, to do the work? Um, I'm, um, well, I just, I'm going to be straight out. We need more people to be involved in, in the ministries of this church. Many come here and they don't serve in a ministry. I would like you to get involved in a ministry. To, because we, I, I, want, I want to position ourselves for kingdom growth. And what that means is I'm not interested in getting people from other churches to come here. If they do, that, that's great. That means I just have to make a call to the pastor and say, hey, I want to see G people who don't know Jesus know Jesus. And I desperately want that for you, to, the, the, to have that in your heart, to have that as part of who you are as a Christ follower that you would be desperate for people to know Jesus. 
And if we are a gathered community of people who are desperate to get um, desperate for other people to know Jesus, then we become a community who is desperate for people to know Jesus. And we begin to live as a community in that way. And it becomes no longer about us. But it becomes about that one person who is struggling, who is depressed, filled with anxiety, filled with hopelessness. We've got the answer. Are we willing to break down our comforts to then share that? It takes work. Straight up. It, it doesn't just happen. Sunday mornings just don't happen. There's a lot of people involved in a Sunday morning. Behind the scenes. Working in the nursery. Working for Coffee Ann. Working for greeting. People with the worship team here early practicing. A lot of things take place. And I'm very grateful that you all are gathered here, that you call this church home. But we have to be about God's work. We have to be about kingdom work. We have to be about sharing the gospel. And so you're going to hear me say this every week. You're going to get sick and tired of me saying and, and instilling, hopefully, the mindset that we want to reach people for Christ. 27,000 people in Cheshire. Maybe even more than that now. 27,000 people in Cheshire. I'm going to say, at best, and I'll be generous, 2,000 attend church on a Sunday. 25,000 other people. That's just in Cheshire. We represent Meriden, Naugatuck, Prospect, Southington, Cheshire, any other? Wallingford. We've got a lot of work to do. And guess what? It's our privilege. God has given us the privilege to share the gospel. God has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to share the gospel. God has given us a building to share the gospel. God has given each one of you as a gift to this community to share the gospel. And so 2018, let's share the gospel. All right. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you for church. Thank you that you have empowered each and every one of us by the power of your Holy Spirit to share the gospel. Thank you that you've given it to us that we know Jesus, that we know salvation, we know grace, we know mercy. Ha ha. But I pray that it doesn't just end on us, that we just go out and live this thing out loud. I pray this morning, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 15, it says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. It's kind of a popular verse when it comes to church worlds. The whole kingdom of God and children, it's a great little combination. Many of us heard this over and again, that's, you know, you have to be like a child or child-like 
what Jesus is really getting at is this, this dependency upon God as a child is dependent upon parents. So as a child, a parent supplies for all the needs and the wants of their children. Safety and protection and food and water and clothes and, and shelter. All of these things. The child is dependent. And what I find interesting is children don't worry, for the most part, on whether or not their parents are going to supply their needs. They just know. They don't question Man, I wonder if mom's going to change my diaper. They just know. They probably can answer the question, dad's not going to change my diaper. But I wonder if mom's going to change my diaper. Though I did see a dad this morning changing a diaper. I felt very sorry for him. But he was in there. <laughs> but children just know. They don't question. They have this, this, this dependency upon their parents. And Jesus is telling us in the same essence that we are to be that dependent upon God, to recognize that he's in control, he holds the cards, he's a loving, caring, giving father, and he has our best interest in mind, and he will supply all of our needs, that our care rests in him. It's all about him, and we can trust him. The guy we're going to talk about this morning in the, in the story in, uh, in Mark is, is kind of the, the opposite of that childlike dependency upon the Lord. The, the guy that we're going to talk about, he seems pretty self-assured. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he tells the story, and Matthew says that he has a great amount of, of uh, possessions. And when Luke writes about him in his gospel, he tells us that he's a ruler, and Mark tells us that he's, he's wealthy. So the guy's got some worldly mojo going on. He, he, he seems to have some things in line. But he's missing one thing. And so what I, what I believe I want to do is, I want to read you the entire story, and then we're going to kind of break it up and, and uh, unpack it section by section. But I thought just to get the whole story, I'll just read it out of my Bible. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed and said to one another, who can then be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. 
Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That's the story written in Mark's gospel about this young guy who's got a lot of money, and he comes to see Jesus. Now, if you read it and you kind of get a sense of the story overall, I'm thinking this guy is kind of, uh, like I said, he's, he's self-assured. He's kind of got it together. He, he, may, he, he seems to be going after what he wants. He thinks he's a, he's a pretty nice guy. He thinks that, you know, I, I, not only do I have wealth, not only do I kind of go after the things that I want, but I, I, I'm a pretty moral dude. Like, I, I follow the rules. He seems to be an achiever and considers himself pretty good. He has attained in his own mind this certain level of acceptable morality. And in verse 17, it says this man, he ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees before him. He runs up. He's going after what he wants. He runs up to Jesus. He's got something on his mind. And it says that he kneels down in probably an act of respect or maybe even reverence before, before Christ. And he asks a really good question. And the question does show me, at least, that he has a real concern for the things of God. He is considering, what more do I need to have eternal life? And he is looking for Jesus to give him a very deliberate thing. This is what you need to do. He's thinking that he might be missing something. What is it that I need to do, Jesus? What is it that I need to add to my arsenal of good behavior that's going to just push me over the line and then I'm clean and green and, and I'm all in? See, from his point of view, I, I really do think that it doesn't matter what Jesus is going to say to him, he's going to be able to do it. He's got this. He, he's, kind of, he's, he's got this, this, you know, he's got this uh, confidence about him. But Jesus is going to reel him in a little bit. He's not going to do it because he wants to spank him. He does it because he loves him. It says in the, in the text, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then Jesus, he, he says, well, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, there's a lot going on in that statement. It could be that this guy is trying to find favor with Jesus and butter him up a little bit. Because historically, in this culture, you would never call a teacher or a rabbi or anybody for that matter good. 
See, in the Old Testament, you can find verse after verse after verse after verse where it says that God is good. God is good. And the mindset in the Jewish mindset of this time, if you called somebody good, you were actually comparing them to God. You were putting them on the same level as God. And so to call somebody good was either just a complete misrepresentation of what you wanted to say, or you're trying to garnish favor with them, or as Jesus presses into this guy a little bit, he says, well, why do you call me good? Is he trying to get this guy to think, do you really see me as God? Because only God is good. Do you understand that by calling me good, you are comparing me or putting me equal to God. And Jesus is pushing this guy a little bit, trying to get him to understand. And then he tells him what he needs to do. All right, what do you need to do to uh, have eternal life? Well, here it is. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus hit the nail on the head. He gave him the correct answer that any rabbi would give somebody asking the question. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says that when you follow the law, then you have life. The law, following the law, was a big deal. And if you followed the law, then you were a righteous person before God. And in that righteousness, you would have life. It's from a very external perspective. In fact, Paul in Philippians 3, when he begins to describe himself, he said, as to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. That's what Paul says about himself. As to following the rules, I am blameless. But then Paul gets to kind of thinking and churning and meditating. Remember, Jesus kind of steps in and messes everything up for him. And Jesus steps in and and, and kind of... Paul begins to look on the inside and recognizes in him there's this big old heart of covetedness. And then Paul goes, you know, if I've broken one part of the law, I've broken the entire law. And he comes to the realization that maybe he's not so righteous. Real righteousness. But this guy that comes to Jesus, he looks at the eternal, external stuff. He hasn't murdered. He hasn't, I mean, most of us here haven't murdered, right? No hands went up. That scares me. Okay. Um, Anyway, he hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't stolen anything. He hasn't given false testimony. He hasn't defrauded anyone. He's honored his father and his mother. He, He declared. Jesus tells him this. He's like, "Woo! I've done that. I've done, I've followed the rules. I've kept these things since I was a boy, since I had my bar mitzvah and they lifted me up in the chair and they danced around. I have kept the law. He's looking pretty good in his own mind. His, he's, he's even deeper in his self-assurance that he's a really nice guy. He's, and, and you know what? I, I, I kind of got to agree with him. He's, he, he's, he's kept what he's been taught. He's a nice guy. He's a good guy. But Jesus is going to mess with him a little bit. And and I I love the first half of verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He says, one thing you lack, bro. It's the message interpretation. 
Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Oh. I, I, like, like, like I, I get it. Like, that would be like Jesus saying to me after I just got my 2018 Harley Davidson, Dennis, I want you to give, give your bike away and follow me. I would have my ug moment myself. Do the demands of Jesus seem just a bit harsh? Just a bit over the top? Sell everything and then give that to the poor? And he's not looking to hurt him. Jesus loves him. There's something and in some something in this young man that that is that Jesus is drawn to. And yet, in that love, Jesus met every, meant every single word he told him. You need to sell everything you have, and you need to give it to the poor. So that question looms, and it just kind of rattles my cage a little bit. Sell everything. This young man runs up to Jesus. He's, he's got a mindset of, of doing what what his religion had told him to do. He shows this reverence, whether it's just, you know, blowing smoke at Jesus or, or trying to garner his, garnish his favor. He wants to know God. He wants to have eternal life. He wants, he's tried to live well. He's done all of the stuff on the outside and then Jesus drops this bombshell. Because I do believe that Jesus looked into his eyes, looked past the surface, and looked right into his heart and soul. And though the man had followed all of the rules, he did break one, the first commandment, that you shall not have any other gods before God. This man was wealthy. His wealth became his God. His wealth took away his ability to have that childlike dependency upon God. That childlike dependency that's required entrance into the kingdom. Now, please understand that Jesus is not throwing out this general command to all you Christians that you have to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then follow Jesus. That's, that's not just a general blanket statement. In reality, if you all did that, our church would close. But he is addressing a bigger issue in all of us. And it's the God of money. The God of materialism. Jesus demands that when we come to him, we put away all of our gods. We get rid of them all. Whatever they are, whatever holds us in bondage to it, whatever distracts us from kingdom work, Jesus says, get rid of those things. And there's probably not a bigger one, one that he doesn't talk about more than money or stuff. And this guy is faced with a huge question. Do I follow Jesus under his terms or do I walk away on mine? Well, 
Verse 22 gives us the answer. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. All that enthusiasm running up to Jesus, all that self-confidence thinking, I got this, I followed the rules, he's going to give me just one more rule, and I'm going to jump over that hurdle, and then I'm in, just gets blown up. I will bet you that that was the last thing he expected Jesus to say, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. He hears those words, his jaw drops, shoulders go up, head hangs low, and he walks away sad. He just couldn't wrap his mind around giving it all away. He liked his life. He considered himself a pretty good guy. He was doing okay. And he couldn't let go of his wealth. Dante called it the great refusal. And do you ever wonder what happened to him? Like, do you ever think beyond the story? Like, like did he go home and did he tell his wife and, you know, complain to his friends? Yeah, this, or, or like, what, what took place in this guy? Now, I have a theory that I was turned on to years and years and years ago. And, and I don't know, um, theologically, it's not a hill that I'm willing to, to, to die on. But I believe in the redemption of the Bible. I believe in the redemption that Jesus, Jesus redeems and he heals and he changes our perspectives and priorities. And there's two little verses in chapter 14 of Mark. And, and it's, it's the, chapter 14, you know, Jesus is in the garden and Jesus gets arrested and... Um, and, you know, and all mayhem breaks out. And there's these two verses that I just wonder. I, I just wonder. So, so Jesus says, you know, am I leading a rebellion? You come to me with swords and clubs to capture me. And, and I've been around you. And then in verse 51 and 52 of chapter 14 of Mark, it says this. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked leaving his garment behind. I wonder, was that him? Now, theology would say no. That was maybe the Apostle John. I don't know why John was running around naked, but, um, but I wonder, was that the young man who sold everything to follow Jesus? But again, understand, he's not, Jesus is not teaching that we all need to take this vow of poverty. There are many godly rich men in the Bible. Solomon, Abraham, Boaz, Job. What Jesus is really warning us about, what the Bible warns us about, is the danger of wealth. But even, but even poverty doesn't free us from the dangers of wealth. I know many, I don't know many poor people, well, I am a poor people, but I mean, there, there are some who want money so bad that the desire for wealth becomes their God. And they haven't been healed. They're unhappy. They're miserable because of all of the things that they don't have. And so it's not just being poor heals your heart from wanting or desiring God or money to be your God. 
but it really becomes this issue of either you have a lot and it becomes your God, or you don't have any and you really want it and it becomes your God. It's a really dangerous spectrum to be on. The disciples and Jesus, they watch this guy walk away. And Jesus sees this as a teaching opportunity, as most of the time Jesus does. And he says this to him. He looked around. He saw the disciples. They're a bit freaked out. How hard it is for, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I really believe we do a disservice to this, this verse, and this is my own opinion, um, because we like to kind of, there's that teaching out there that there was this little gate in the wall and it was called the eye of the needle and it was really small and he had to bend down and it would almost be like a camel trying to walk through that little gate. But there, there is, there is uh, evidence in other ancient writings of animals being compared, um, moving through an eye of a needle to illustrate the impossibility of whatever it was being compared to. The Babylonian Talmud writes about an elephant, which was the biggest animal they can conjure up in their, in their culture, moving through the eye of a needle as it's just impossible. And so J Jesus takes the biggest animal in Palestine. He goes, it's, it's just like a camel Humps and all going through the actual eye of a needle. That's how impossible it really is for someone to get into heaven who trusts their money more than they trust God. And the disciples are just blown away. They're like, what? Really? Because there's this, there's always been this um, gospel of, of prosperity in religion. And, and it, it's in the Jewish religion back in this cultural time also. Because if you had a lot of money, that was a very clear indication that God's favor was on you and that God has blessed you. Now, I do believe that wealth is God's gift to us all. But see, the reverse side of that was, if you didn't have money, then God was punishing you in some way. God's blessing wasn't upon you, or God didn't favor you. And the only problem with that perspective is, well, is the Bible. And, and, and so the, the, the disciples are, are hearing this and looking at this. It would be unfathomable to think that money would prevent... Entering into the kingdom of God because, obviously, if you had money, then God favored you. And why would he then stop you from coming into the kingdom? And if you were rich and you wanted to put a couple more uh, check marks in the boxes, you would then give alms to the poor. And that would supersize your status. You'd get some God cred. And that would even look better in this, con this uh, concept of external doing to garnish God's favor. And I think we still see that today in, in evangelical worlds. Um, you know, the, the um, God wants everybody to be millionaires and, and you, you're not because of some um, unfavor that you have in your life, some sin you have in your life. You're just not doing the right things. I, I don't buy into that. I think God loves broke people because look how many of us he's made. And, and, and so... 
I don't, I don't really buy in, into that, but what Jesus is getting at is that wealth can really be a handicap in a person's life. We look at wealthy people and think, look at the privilege that they have. And Jesus looks at wealth and looks at the danger that that privilege can cause within their soul. Because that's, what it, that's where it can lead. The, the disadvantage of wealth is the danger of it perverting and darkening our heart and soul. We begin to forget what is important because we can just buy all the things that we want. We, we, start, to, um, we start to know the price of everything and begin to value nothing. It's the dangers of wealth. Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter to him. He says, tell the rich, tell them not to be arrogant. Tell them not to be prideful. Tell them not to put their hope in money, but put their hope in God. And so he's not saying that, you know, rich, being rich is a sin. That's not what Jesus is getting at. What he's saying is when you put your trust in your hope, in your money, the danger of arrogance and indifference and insensitivity are ever prevalent in that heart. And ultimately, wealth can steal the posture of that helpless dependence on God. Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, they're like, hey, we are so wealthy, we don't need a thing. And Jesus tells them, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Woo! Now, given the fact, I don't believe anyway within our community, given the fact that no one woke up Christmas morning with a Lexus in the driveway with a bow on it, is, is that a, an assumption that I can still make? Though we know we, that somebody did get a washing machine. Close, but we're not quite there yet. All right, so... It's very easy for us to think that those other people are rich. And, and they really are. I, I mean, I've watched MTV Cribs. And I need to repent after every episode because I covet the socks off of some of those people. I mean, just the swimming pool is bigger than my whole house. And so that, yeah, so, so we look at Hollywood and go, and a lot of money. And we look at, you know, sports people, you know, and you laugh at me because I only work one day a week. Yeah, hello, uh, NFL quarterback, mm-hmm, one day a week. And we look at musicians, and they, make, they do make a lot of money. But I have said it many, many times before. Look around this room. Go ahead, look around. Go ahead. No, really, look around. What you're looking at is compared to the rest of the world, a very wealthy group of people in in this room. Very wealthy group of people. For most of the world, my problems, my debt, the payments that I have to make every month on this, that, and the other thing would be considered a blessing. Like you got, you, you, you sit on, on that thing with water in it and you, do your, you don't have to go out over there to do your business? You, wait, 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 wait. You have a dial on your wall and it makes heat? And then it makes it cool? 
Wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me, let me, let me get this straight. You hit a switch and that glass thing lights up. If you've traveled the world, if you've gone to any third world country, you would be amazed at what they don't have. You could just go to a store and drink pink stuff and your diarrhea goes away. Wait, you don't have to walk three days to get there? You can drive in a car that you have three of and get there in an hour? We are very wealthy compared to the world standards. Very, very wealthy. And what we do with our wealth is a a determining factor on our own spiritual health. Are we willing to no longer trust in things, money, riches? And are we willing to trust only in God, childlike trust? And are we willing to take the wealth that we have and invest it back into God's kingdom? I can't answer that question for any of you. That's a question you have to answer. I've often quoted C.S. Lewis And I'll I'll quote him again. Um, Mere Christianity, one of my favorite books of of all time. Uh, He writes on charity. And and what his idea of charity is, is that he's talking about the Christian and what the Christian should give back to God's kingdom. And he writes this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Are we willing to let go of our treasure and store up treasure in heaven? Jesus is going to press this a little farther because Peter freaked out a little bit. And he's like, we've left everything to follow you. We've given it all up to follow you. And look at Jesus' response. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And we get to have be persecuted. Woo-hoo, thank you, Jesus. And in the age to come, eternal life. Are we willing to, are we willing to lose for the gospel? Are we willing to lose that others may know Jesus? I mean, really lose. Like, I look at my own life, and I'm not sure I've lost. I've made adjustments. I've tweaked things here and there. But have I really lost for the gospel? Have I really lost for the sake of Jesus? Maybe we don't get this promise 
because we hang on too tight to what we already have. Jesus said those who are willing to lose, not adjust, not throw a little here, a little there, but those who have lost, left home, left their family, left their source of income, Church, I am very excited about 2018, and and I don't know why. I just have this sense in me that God is going to pop some bubbles, break down some walls, and do some really cool things that only God can do. And they're going to be things in such a way that there's no way that any of us can get the credit. Because they're not going to be what we think. You know, I meet with pastors uh, every, now it's Wednesday, and a really good group of um, ministry leaders and pastors, both, both men and women. And there's this common theme of praying for revival. And um, I, I really hate the word Revival. Uh, I, I, I don't even like to pray about it because what I find is we've, as pastors and, and people, we've studied revival, you know, and, and, we, and, and it looks like this. And every time when you press into this idea of revival, we always want it to kind of look like this. I read the scripture and, and God wants to do something new. And I believe that the next revival, call it what you may, the great awaking, the great yawn, I I don't know, whatever you want to call it, it's going to be completely something new that we just could not have imagined that God was going to do. But it starts with each individual Christian having the pain and the desire and the passion to see other people know Jesus. Period. And that we would organize our life in such a manner. That we would organize our time. That we would organize our our possessions. That we would organize our finances. That people would know Jesus. Period. I'm really excited that you're all on this journey with me. Because I don't make a church. We make the church. Each one of us makes the church. Each one of us has been gifted with spiritual gifts to make the church. And we're going to see what God is up to. And so, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. And if you get a chance, give Brian a happy birthday kiss.